Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Steven Luger. Steve Luger is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in San Francisco. He has trained and provided services in community settings, including county hospitals, outpatient clinics, and public schools. Steve is a member of the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California, and he recently completed a term on the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California's Board of Directors. He's published several articles in the Journal of Studies in Gender and Sexuality on gender issues and gay male identity. He's also on the faculty of the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis, teaching courses in child development, and has taught and supervised at multiple community mental health centers in the Bay Area. He's currently interested in the intersection of technology and the social, gender studies, and the effects of climate change on the individual and collective psyche. Steve graduated from the University of Virginia with a degree in English literature and came to the field of psychology after working in the book publishing industry in New York City. Today, Dr. Luger will discuss the Kleinian notion of the depressive position, why it is of value, and how consumer technology may facilitate a mindset of optimization that then in turn impacts our capacity to value and achieve the depressive position. Welcome to the show, Dr. Luger. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, thank you uh, very much for having me on, and thank you for getting uh, this podcast off the ground. There's been a really exciting bit of support and, and excitement about the podcast getting going. Thank you. Yeah. So let's just dive right in. Melanie Klein is a famous psychoanalyst who wrote extensively in the early 20th century. She developed several theories, largely arising from her work from ch- with children. She's the first who've discussed the depressive position. Maybe you can begin by describing what you think the depressive position is or how you understand it, how you work with it, and the ways in which psychoanalysts in general think this concept is really important, which the layperson already doesn't sound very fun, I think, because of the word depressive inside of it. So tell us a little bit about why one might strive to achieve the depressive position and what are its merits? It's such an interesting question. I think I'll try to make sense of it both you know, for an audience of, of psychoanalysts and those listeners who are non-mental health professionals. I love what you pointed out, Nicole, I think to a non-psychoanalyst, the quote, depressive position definitely sounds like a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's like, who would want to get stuck in a depressed place, as the phrase suggests? Mm -hmm. But the depressive position, you know, I think is thought of by a psychoanalyst as 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 a very good thing. You know, really, I'd first describe it as a developmental construct, and as you said, that was, that was first formulated by, by Melanie Klein, that it has to do with being able to experience feelings of both love and hate for the same object or person, you know, as we as psychoanalysts will, will often refer to people, but, but also kind of symbolic figures in our minds. That original object is, is usually thought to be the child's primary caretaker in Klein's original schematic. 
So her idea was that in our earliest psychic development, all of us as babies keep the good and the bad, the loved and the hated, the idealized or the persecuting parts of our earliest caretakers uh, separated in our minds and psyches. And that this is done to protect the good stuff in that person. So in other words, that would be something like, mom is all good. She can do me no wrong. She can do me no harm. It basically keeps all those bad feelings of anger or hate or disappointment separated from all the loving and nourishing, life-giving feelings that, that we have for our first caregivers. So I'd say it's a real developmental accomplishment to be able to hold in mind that everyone, you know, like mothers, fathers, lovers, friends, enemies, you know, has both good and bad parts to them. And to be able to integrate those good and bad aspects you know, has very, very important implications for psychological health and development. So one way to think about it is, is if we can only hold the good parts of somebody in mind, we end up idealizing them and, you know, which inevitably falls apart and can lead to immense disappointments. And we also can aspire to a, a kind of need to be omnipotent or, or exceptional, if that's how we see people in the world. And that obviously can lead to all kinds of problems as well. So mm-hmm. While it stinks, I think, to get that people we love have bad sides too, it keeps us grounded and, and allows us to acknowledge the realities of human nature. And I think to have much fuller and more fulfilling relationships and lives. And, you know, it's a bummer, but of course, but it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it allows us to maybe tolerate our humanness, both in ourselves and in other people, and to stay with relationships. Because if they are all idealized at the first sign of disappointment, if we can't tolerate the disappointments and the hatred and the anger and the frustration, we can't kind of continue. We all know friends who you know, are dating, which can be such a struggle where they're looking for the perfect match. And if that person isn't perfect, then they move on to the next person or to the next person looking for someone who doesn't ever disappoint. And I think those things just kind of don't ever really conclude. We just continue and continue searching then instead of developing and staying with something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So they're really the relational components that we each just been talking about, but also it really has has implications for how we see reality, right? Nothing is perfect. And if we can't sort of see the the multidimensionality of things, you know, we can get pretty detached from reality, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I have some patients, friends, you know, people in my life who sometimes say, yeah, well, shouldn't I strive for perfection anyway, even though I'm never going to achieve it? Like, isn't this sort of a giving up if I just say, oh, yeah, the depressive, depressive position is a good thing. That's an achievement. Does that lead us to mediocrity or take out any kind of exceptional striving? Yeah, it's such an interesting thing that you bring up because I, I think I get asked questions like that in my practice, you know, day in and day mm-hmm. out. Me too. Yeah. And it's such a hard thing to answer because, it, you know, really what it connotes is a kind of, uh, you know, a, a sort of either or paradigm where it's it's really just one or the other. It's either mediocrity or, or perfection. And and I think it's subtle, but I think there's there's a real case to be made for the fact that life, well, I actually don't think this is so subtle, but life is just not only perfection, you know, and that a life with nothing but flow is kind of not really living, I think, for a lot of people. So, or at least that's that's how I see it. And I think many philosophers and analysts and other therapists, you know, around the world see it in a similar way. So I think it's a tricky thing because it can feel like it's giving up, but I wouldn't really call it that myself. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I can feel myself pulled to ask you probably five different philosophical questions right now yeah. about well, what is the meaning of life and, and so what are we aiming for and so on. But I'm going to set that aside and maybe proceed with where we are with the depressive position. I want to say another piece because I think there's something, you know, really that I think has a lot to do with, with kind of more social implications of the depressive position. And, you know, so I'll, I'll take it a little further. Being in the depressive position is also what's thought to lead to the development of the capacity for guilt and concern for others. Mm-hmm. And really in the best circumstances to make reparations for something we've done that's, that's caused others pain. So if you think of all the bad feelings that we can have when hating someone we love, you know, or if we've done something awful to them because of those bad feelings, guilt arises when we feel those feelings and we worry we've done something destructive. And uh-huh. to be human is to feel those feelings, right? Those negative feelings and those let's say, hateful feelings. And sometimes we do destructive things. So to be able to move from guilt to reparation, it's thought to be a real accomplishment of the depressive position and and something I think is really important. You know, when I think of it and I conceptualize it, I think you could say that this ability to repair wrongdoings is is kind of one of the greatest and most pro-social aspects of being human. Mm -hmm. It entails feelings that aren't always so great, you know, acknowledging what we've done or, you know, the sort of pain we might've caused somebody. But the capacity for concern and repair allows us to get along with and connect with others and is, I think, really one of the most fundamentally unique parts of our humanity. Wow. That really makes it clear why the depressive position would be important, because without reparation and without concern and care, then we are essentially going to have a really difficult time with big problems like war or climate change or what have you. Exactly. We're all just kind of in it for ourselves. And that's, you know, to me, that unfortunately is... That's not so human. And it's also not working very well for so many people. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Great. So how do psychoanalysts or how does the psychoanalytic process facilitate helping people to achieve the depressive position and maintain it? Yeah. You know, this is a huge question, Nicola. And I, um, I like huge questions. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. But I think there have been entire books and many, many articles, psychoanalytic and otherwise, probably written, written about it. You know, I'd also, I'll say, you know, I wouldn't identify myself as an expert in Kleinian theory, but I'll, I'll do my best. I do think psychoanalysis's stock and trade is really all about the depressed position. I think there are so many dimensions to what psychoanalysis does to help facilitate that psychic movement toward it, to enter it. But I would say first and foremost, I think we help those we work with, be it our patients or institutions that we're involved with, think the overwhelming thoughts and feel the overwhelming feelings that prevent us from seeing others and even ourselves as whole people with both good and bad parts. But this involves so many difficult things for all of us. You know, I think it it usually brings up worries about our own vulnerabilities and our inherent dependence on one another. And just the plain and simple facts of our own, you know, many, many limitations. Mm-hmm. So I think psychoanalysis tries to do this through the relationship, you know, chiefly tries to do this between the relationship, through the relationship between an analyst and a and patient in the consulting room, or through groups and systems of people when not in the traditional setting. Mm-hmm. You know, by that, I mean, I, I think that feelings of vulnerability and dependency on another person and insecurities about limitations, they just come up in the therapeutic context. And an analyst tries to help a patient see how those things affect that person and their relationships and, and make those feelings more tolerable and less conflictual. And I think, you know, to help people accept themselves and the other people in their lives for, for being flawed, you know, like basically to 
to love themselves and, and others, you know, kind of warts and all. Mm-hmm. This is really, really hard work and is often slow and can be messy and painstaking. And, you know, but to get back to the topic at hand, you know, I think when you consider consumer technology and its offerings of efficiency and perfection and optimization, you can start to see how these two paradigms do not exactly seem like the most obvious bedfellows. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, here we are. Here we are. So we'll get into that in one second. I wanted to just, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about what it's like to be in psychoanalysis. And sometimes many of us have psychoanalytic couches, which are kind of essentially day beds or, you know, they look like Victorian reclining, fainting couches and so on for the listeners who aren't familiar. And the simple act of laying on a couch with an analyst sitting behind you out of sight he or she can see you, but you can't see your analyst. And you're laying there sort of exposed warts and all, talking about, you know, free associating. There's something inherently vulnerable about that act compared to other modes of healing in some ways, which are also vulnerable. But I'm just thinking about what it means to sit in the office of someone who's doing, you know, I don't know, cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. You know, you're checking your homework and you're thinking about, the uh, handbook and the manual that tells you which kinds of homeworks to assign and, you know, what types of behavioral targets to address. It feels a lot more vulnerable to be laying down on a couch in front of an analyst, I think, and maybe more facilitative of the depressive position. Would you agree? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, I, I feel compelled also to, to kind of start with, I sort of love the idea of, of bringing in the traditional analytic setting, you know, psychoanalytic setting in an office with a couch, which the last two and a half years, we've very few of us have had a whole lot of opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. And I think you're just bringing up interesting aspects to the method of psychoanalysis that are, you know, kind of really changing and have changed so much since, since COVID began. But mm-hmm. I do think that there's something about psychoanalysis that is very, very unique and has a lot to do with regression of a, of a kind of sort. And, and by that, that, that can be a, a pretty scary sounding word. But I think that, that our hope is that we can allow for people to confront and open up to their own messier, more perhaps dependent or vulnerable parts of themselves so that they can feel stronger, ultimately. That is a hallmark, I think, of, of psychoanalysis. And, you know, it, it's again, one of these kind of tensions or, or paradoxes. I'll be talking more about, you know, an optimization mindset you know, psychoanalysis isn't only about, you know, somebody lying down and, and just kind of talking about things that they had no idea they would talk about and feeling very vulnerable. The idea is that, that doing that will allow someone to, to ultimately feel stronger in themselves mm-hmm. in their own history and, and, and their own experiences. So I do think there's a lot to be said for, you know, in a more traditional setting when somebody is actually able to lie down on, on the old the old couch, there's a lot to be said for that method. And and generally, I think we encourage it in the process to help someone feel stronger. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about optimization mindsets, and you've recently written pretty extensively about optimization and its relationship to technology as technology causing or creating or co-creating these kinds of mindsets. My thinking here is that if the goal of technology, as you've put it before, is to optimize, meaning to kind of wipe out vulnerability and dependence and human limitations to try to strive beyond those. Might this be at odds with the goals of the depressive position? And if technology is at odds with the depressive position, is it kind of also at odds with psychoanalysis? And maybe 
How can we begin to reconcile these two things? You know, again, this is a, it's a huge, a huge and, and an important question, really. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about what we as psychoanalysts can, can offer people who want to optimize themselves, you know, and one of the ways I have to think about this, you know, optimize themselves as they would a, a bit of code. If our stock and trade is, is sitting with and tolerating, and I, I think, as I was just saying, you know, growing from the messy, sort of more rational emotions and parts of ourselves. But I first want to speak to something, a part of the questions, you know, that I think you just asked, you just posed were framed. And I think it's so easy to do this. And I've done, I've done it so many, many times in my own mind to conceptualize it as a, as a split between psychoanalysis and the op- optimization mindset mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's propagated by, by big tech. I, I don't think we actually attain the depressive position once and for all, but I do think it's a spot on a continuum of psychic functioning. And I think we all oscillate from what psychoanalysts call the sort of companion to the depressive position is, is what's called the paranoid schizoid position. That really entails like all or nothing thinking and, you know, very merged relationships and sort of splitting in things and all good or all bad. You know, the comparison to depressive position functioning, it's, it's quite a big one, but that's also part of the point that the optimization mindset often entails the belief that we can reach or attain an optimized state you know, that that's an end goal. And that could be a lot of things. It could be one of professional success or programming accomplishment or or a body hack that allows us to, to accomplish an extreme health or fitness goal. And my patients talk to me a lot about the frustration of not always being at, you know, kind of quote peak performance or having peak experiences. Mm -hmm. But the notion of the depressive position is, is really, you know, that there's a constellation of mental states, you know, and, and, and I think it's really helpful, actually, if we can accept that, you know, sometimes we're in it, you know, sometimes we're in the depressed position, sometimes we're in a peak performance kind of state, and sometimes we're not, you know, sometimes we're not functioning at our best at all. And, you know, that we all can fall back into the all or nothing kind of thinking, or that we feel we're operating in pretty regressed ways. So, that's actually a really relieving place to be when you think about it. I think it's a lot of what psychoanalysis can offer those in our society who feel that, and I say in our society, because I think, you know, I'm very immersed in the Silicon Valley Bay area technology world, but also I I think these kind of ethics and, and mindsets are really, really permeating the entirety of our society at large. We all use these products. It's a very, you know, powerful ideal that's kind of really seeped into the culture, but I think we can offer to those in our society who feel they should be able to rid themselves of all pain and suffering so much, you know, if, if they feel that they don't always have to operate in such an optimized state. So as you're talking, I'm thinking we've always had human strivings toward perfection and wanting to optimize. And we've always had people oscillating between paranoid schizoid and depressive position. That's always been kind of a, a challenge both professionally and just, you know, for humans as a, as a group. Mm-hmm. In what ways has technology made this a new moment? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question. I can take it in a couple of different directions, but, but one I think, you know, really has to do with the ubiquity of technology and, and in a sense what, what we consider to be consumer technology now, big tech. There's a smartphone in billions of hands, you know, across the world that gives profound access to immediate information and immediate data processing, basically, that is so very, very different than I think, you know, the notions of, of a more, let's say, an oral tradition 
or a religion of old, right? You know, where, where things are kind of passed down slowly and dispersed very slowly, you know, ideas of attainment or improvement or optimization even. And so I think that's one angle. And I think that's probably one of the most important, but another, you know, goes into a more, you know, kind of sociopolitical slant and that's, we have to kind of put it in a capitalist context or neoliberal context, really, that, you know, there's a lot of money invested in these technologies and, you know, these corporations make a lot of people and, you know, some would say not so many people, you know, relative to the whole, the whole collective, a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. They're profit-driven, you might say. And so that, that does play a role. And I think I speak more about this in, in my, my most recent paper, that there's a kind of precarity that we feel in our society where things are pretty, you know, we don't have a, a very strong safety net underneath our feet. And so a lot of people kind of strive for this, this feeling of, you know, kind of really, I've got this, I can optimize it, I've got it under control if they, in a, in a less than conscious way, don't feel super secure in their lives. That kind of really does play a quieter role or maybe a less obvious role. But I think that those are pretty distinct reasons. So, you know, kind of taking a step back, I think that uh, a kind of relentless optimization mindset is, has really, it's really seeped into our collective consciousness as users of, of consumer technologies like social media and other large data-driven technologies. And when we're made to believe that everything can be optimized from a flawed marketplace, let's say, to our own bodies and our own psyches, I think that's when we can run into problems. So if we think of the hope to transform ourselves in an optimization mindset, it's very hard because the human mind can't be rewritten in the same way that a a clunky bit of outdated code can. If we feel we can always optimize ourselves or our relationships, I think we run the risk of just trying to outrun the inevitable limitations of being human. And and that can lead to a very cruel kind of chasing the dragon phenomena that I that I call cruel optimization. What I mean there draws from the thinking of uh, Lauren Berlant, who is an incredibly influential scholar in the field of affect theory, who uh, tragically passed away in, in 2021. But but she posed a notion of of what she called cruel optimism. In a nutshell, that's when something you desire is actually an obstacle to your flourishing. So in my schema of cruel optimization, the quest to optimize oneself will inevitably lead to disappointment. And in some cases, I think, you know, even something like dissociation from the reality is that we're all flawed, we're all vulnerable, we're all dependent on on others in in one way or another. I think it can create a a pretty vicious downward spiral where where one chases the optimized state and becomes miserable and, and quite depleted in the process. So helping someone come to terms with and, and even embrace their own limitations and fallibility, you know, after really being kind of taken over by the optimization mindset is uh, something I, I spent a lot of time doing in my own practice. And I, I imagine, you know, you, that's, that sounds familiar to you too. Indeed it does. Yeah. Do you want to say more about, you know, any specific case examples and kind of really flesh that out? I think it's quite interesting when we really see the intersection of technology and cruel optimization mindsets and this kind of difficulties with achieving depressive position. Do you have any examples that you might like to share? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's so many, I think, uh, you know, the um, maybe the most sort of widely relatable one that, that comes to mind is, is also probably the most talked about end user experience of a big consumer tech these days. And, and that's namely, you know, the way people engage with social media, 
you know, so I'd say think of the way that many people will post, you know, deeply curated or tweaked and filtered versions of their lives on platforms like Instagram and Facebook, or, you know, even the way that, uh, that TikTok creates like mega famous stars with mega followings from uh, tiny 10 second or less videos. And yet I'd say many people and many of my patients and myself, you know, can feel connected to and, and even sort of affiliated with these content producers. And it's obviously very fair to say that that's not the whole story, whole of the story for any of these people who are posting about their lives on, on Instagram or producing content for TikTok. But, but, you know, countless people watch them from afar and see this one dimensional picture. And of course, this leads to a feeling of lack and desire when seeing these optimized versions of someone else's life and, or that someone is always happy, you know, making a new and funny dance move on TikTok. So I think it perpetuates the optimization mindset in a way, you know, while denying the realities of life, just being hard and messy and not so perfectly Instagram filtered or curated all the time. That's one, you know, more general kind of example, but, or another sort of way that I think about it is something we're really exposed to here in, in the Bay Area and in Silicon Valley. And it, it has more to do with what some call, you know, the disruptive technologies, you know, that have been the engine of the tech boom of the last 15 or so years. And I think of companies like Uber or Lyft that, you know, became major multinational corporations, you know, trying to solve for efficiency problems in transportation. Uber became famous because it uh, disrupted the famously inefficient taxi system here in San Francisco. And that could then be replicated all over the world through its app, its app based system. And, you know, it was in the palm of billions of hands of people looking for rides. So I would say part of the, a big part of the marketing of big consumer tech is that, you know, there's no problem that is unsolvable with technology. They can't be optimized through good code and lots and lots of user data, but Uber and many companies like it have been have started to be seen, not started, have been seen as, you know, the very non-optimized entities that they are, you know, with myriad problems. And, you know, we don't certainly wouldn't be able to get into all of those problems today, but a lot have to do with how data gets exploited, how gig workers get exploited, you know, among many, many others. So it's very clearly the system is not only not optimized, I think we've got to take a much, much deeper look at the human costs of, you know, data-driven and algorithmic big tech systems. It's fascinating. You know, as you're talking, the reason why big tech or algorithmic systems work is because they're kind of working on machine time when we're sleeping. They aren't connected to a body so they can be optimized. They're dealing with massive amounts of data and lots of different people. So just by the sheer size of the numbers, they're able to be profitable. And I guess I'm thinking about even if they could take into account the human costs or the maybe costs on our environment and somehow control for that. I mean, if you talk to young people, they say, oh, yeah, technology is going to solve our climate crisis. It can certainly solve emotional problems. Look at all these things I'm working on. Right. And I'm trying to be a good Gen Xer and be you know, open-minded and supportive of generations that are younger than me as they dream about a world where tech can actually solve these giant human climate war, you know, they solve these giant problems. What do you think about that? You know, with cruel optimization at the root of some of these things, what do you think about the big dreams that younger people seem to have? It's, you know, very, very interesting and multifaceted and complex, you know, I keep, you know, I, these are great questions in that respect, because they're, they open a lot of things up, but I, um, it really captures this tension really well. And it, it might sound, I think, and it, it might sound kind of subtle, but um, 
I, I imagine you've heard of, and you, or you might have heard of the uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Yes, <laughs> which is a you know a very admirable and and very well resourced public health and biotech philanthropic institution that's based here in the Bay Area and in San Francisco specifically. But you know they've done a lot of good in the areas of health science and education and and community work and. You know, for those who don't know, it was it was funded by and founded by Priscilla Chan and, and Mark Zuckerberg, who I don't think need major introductions in, in the tech context. I want to say maybe 2015 or 2016. And it is still, I believe, uh, part of their mission. But I, I remember when they were first funded, I, I was really chafed when I, I heard, I think, one of the major components of their mission statement, which is literally to cure and prevent and I, I, I want to say manage all disease by the end of the 21st century. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'll just say that again, all disease. And, you know, I think what you could say on the face of it, it's an incredibly admirable goal that has everything to do with all the best of an optimization mindset. You know, you've got transformational strivings and deep disruptive innovations. And I think on the face of it, obviously would do an incredible amount of good for, you know, the, the global populace. But global populace of humans. It's a little specious, is it not? Well, yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And that's exactly where I'm going. You know, it doesn't take into account these very significant and profound ethical questions, as well as just profound resource questions about the realities of life on this planet. You know, that if there's no more disease, human disease, right, by the end, to your point, by the end of the 21st century, how does our already severely overtaxed planet manage that many more human lives. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of seductive grandiosity to the notion of ending all disease that I it just, it doesn't remotely account for, you know, what we could kind of call the depressive position limitations, as it were, of, um, of life as we know it on this planet. So I think there's just so much more that needs to be, you know, really actively, deeply, ethically engaged with not just in a, you know, kind of a navel gazing thinking sort of way, but I think as psychoanalysts, we can do this work, but I also think policymakers, I think, you know, major philanthropists and large, you know, powerful institutions have to do that kind of work because technology is, is incredibly powerful and it is transformational and there's an immense amount of good that can be done, but it, it can't be done. I think when it's rooted in that kind of more grandiose sort of omnipotent mindset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Mark Zuckerberg and Chan need to be, you know, able to access the depressive position is what you're saying. Uh, I, yeah, you know, can't speak to them so directly, but yeah, that, that sounds about right to me. That sounds <laughs> right. I think there are benefits though. It's optimization, mm-hmm. big time. What do you think they are? Yeah. There's so, I mean, there's so many is the, is the funny thing. I mean, it's just realizing I came into my office to record our, this podcast with you today. And I, uh, it's a very hot day in San Francisco as it is all around the state of California and the West right now. And I decided I would take a, um, what's called a, a lift bike, you know, an, an e-bike that, you know, there are stations put up all around the city, you know, the, the sort of center of the city of San Francisco. And, you know, this is a bike that gets you, a lo- you know, to where you want to go a lot faster. It, I, there's one, you know, a block from my house. There's one, a third of a block from my office. And I got here you know, not sweaty and felt, you know, I had more time to eat my lunch and just kind of get ready for the interview. That was born out of optimization, right? You know, there was, there was a problem, you know, of people getting around in a city with big hills and getting around with ease. And it's a carbon neutral uh, situation that, you know, I get a little bit of exercise and 
I feel very, very good about it. You know, that's a really good example. Yeah, yeah. I think of a benefit of optimization. Kind of taking a step back to something more sort of theoretical, you know, the when I write about the notion of technology and optimization, I borrow from uh, the psychoanalyst Christopher Bolas and his notion of the, of a transformational object, which is, you know, basically the, the notion of being transformed by our sort of earliest experiences in life and earliest caregivers. And, you know, I'm always amazed when I think about that idea of how obvious the notion is, you know, like who wouldn't want to be transformed in the way that he, the way the Bolas talks about it. But as I've been saying, it can be complicated and difficult when there's a sense that one can just sort of rid themselves of pain or confusion. And if we can't accept that uh, transformation is not always available. So I think there's just been so much transformational change in the course of human history, as you, as you kind of alluded to, from you know, the invention of the written word to getting someone on the moon to CRISPR, you know, in, in mm-hmm. more modern times. And these things are all driven by hope to transform something and, and hopefully improve lives. And, and a wish to optimize is, is part of what fuels that. So I just think we have to hold the tensions in mind that it can break down. You know, when I was kind of just talking about the Chan Zuckerberg uh, mission statement, you know, it breaks down if a kind of grand, grandiosity or omnipotence takes it over and one loses sight of the limitations of, you know, being human or of technology or, you know, more the problematics of, of um, you know, having a population of 9 billion and growing with, with no disease. So I want to encourage people to always take into account the, that tension. I think on a more personal note, I, I really got in touch with uh, my own wishes for transformation and, and optimization, you know, around climate change, actually. You know, when I, I've been doing some recent writing and the climate crisis is something that, that, that concerns me very deeply. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I realized that I, I, I often fantasize about things like, like major cloud seeding operations to combat droughts in the West or, you know, like a military style spaceship that, you know, out of a sci-fi movie like Independence Day that, mm-hmm. that can, you know, put out the multi-million acre wildfires that we've been struggling with for, for so many years. And those sound like creative ideas, <laughs> you know, and I think to that end, they actually help me in that they can be very, very powerful and, and helpful, you know, and that they, they can sort of relieve anxiety and, and also give us hope. I think we need to be able to dream and play with these notions of transformation and optimization. But as, as you can imagine, I'd say by now, we just, I think we, I'd always, always caution that we not get stuck in that mindset or you have other, other problems. As you're talking, I'm thinking about something kind of along the lines of ethical dreaming. Like what would it be like oh, yeah. to be able to differentiate between a dream that is something that you could actually take up because it's a creative idea, because we live in a time of, you know, intense technology growth where some of these ideas, what you just suggested with a spaceship type thing that would come and put out wildfires might very well be possible, Yeah. actually. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, that, that would have seemed like, you know, pure craziness. I think we don't yet know what we don't know. And it's very difficult to discern the difference between a dream that is just a dream and a dream that could actually be actualized. And I think that's the problem inside of this cruel optimization is we're not sure as a collective what's possible and what's not and what's grandiose and what's not. What is the right tension to hold between disappointment and striving? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really spot on. Maybe say a little bit about what you think the the psychoanalyst is to do with all of this. Like, What's our, our role going to be like in the future or in the present, given all the ubiquitous technology and cruel optimization and tensions? Well, I, I mean, I think that's 
just dream with me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I will. I think that's always kind of been our our struggle. I mean, you know, obviously the world has changed so radically since the the birth of psychoanalysis and and you know the the birth of talk therapies. But you know, I think there's a lot of you know quiet concern in the in the mental health field for uh, well, quiet in some corners and not so quiet in others. But but for notions of machine learning and AI based therapeutic interventions and what does that mean for for our profession and to the phrase you just used, you know, we, we don't know what we don't know. It is pretty hard to imagine what it would be like as things become more uh, machine-based that really could be quite useful in the mental health field. And I think that there are very, very useful and some, some impactful sort of more technology-based tools, but I don't think that they replace the ineffable human quality of the connection that, that any mental health professional, any human mental health professional brings to their work, mm-hmm. you know, psychoanalyst or otherwise. So, I mean, I think it's really, it's hard to imagine, you know, where, where things will go, you know, in the next 50, certainly next hundred years. I do think it's our job and our ethical imperative as psychoanalysts and, and especially, you know, those of us that are that are practicing in, in areas, you know, where, where a lot of the technology is really being driven and, and created and then brought to market. I actually think it's part of our role to sort of take up these ethical questions with the people that we're working with, not just the creators of the tech, but also the users of the tech. That is what psychoanalysts have always, I think, been able to do is to, to kind of help ask the harder and the darker questions so that the society can dream and can do something with them as well as, and certainly, you know, maybe you know, debatably, most importantly, our, our individual patients. But I do think of our collective duty as well, which I, I think we do have a collective or a duty to the collective to do that kind of work. Hmm. I really share your ideas there. I agree. So I know you're working currently on a series of writings and projects. Is there anything you'd like to share about any of the projects that you're working on currently or in the future or about cruel optimization, the depressive position or anything that we've talked about today with our listeners? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking. I currently have a, a chapter in a forthcoming book. The chapter, my chapter is called uh, Cruel Optimization, Interrogating Technology's Optimization of Human Being. The book is is on technology's influence on human psychology and, and the mind, and, and that's going to be published by Rutledge. And it's edited by David Goodman and, and Matthew Clemente of uh, Boston College both of whom have been editors of the, uh, the Psychology and the Other book series. The book is, is called uh, The Rutledge International Handbook of Psychoanalysis, Subjectivity, and Technology. And it's set to be published in, in the spring of uh, 2023. So yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And there's a really interesting group of, of scholars in, in psychoanalysis and, and other allied fields that are thinking about technology's influence on the mind and, and subjectivity that... Uh, that are featured in the book. And so I hope it'll be, be useful to people. I'm currently working on and developing a paper that, that, that's a new iteration of this topic. And it, it's really, you know, related to the optimization mindset. And you know, we've been kind of talking about some of the, the ideas already, but, you know, having worked with a number of people in big tech, you know, in, in San Francisco and the Bay Area for a number of years, I've seen many of these individuals develop from, you know, a, a deep wish to optimize themselves to a, a real a, a reckoning with some of the problematics, uh, you know, and the benefits of, of the mindset. So I've, I've been thinking what I, about something I, I might call like a post-techie subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like it. Yeah, you know, just sort of a play on, you know, some of the ideas that I've already been working on. And, 
I want to further explore notions of, of reparation and, you know, reparations to the self, but also to the society in a way and try to take up, you know, what, what psychoanalysis and, and the psychoanalyst role in this process really, you know, may be and, you know, how we can, you know, best do this work. So I think that's kind of where I'm, I'm trying to go in my, my next project. Sounds exciting. I can't wait to uh, read what you put out there. Thank you. Yeah, I hope to do that sooner than later. <laughs> so. Great. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Luger. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Tom Woldridge about narcissism and how consumer technologies can facilitate or foreclose more authentic experiences of ourselves. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.